Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Sunday School Shorthand. This week we are on our fourth uh, episode of Reading Romans Backwards. We talk about welcome, we talk about unity, and we talk about what it means for us in the church to think about ourselves as a group and not as individuals. Stick around. Holy God, we are so grateful for this time that we have together. We're grateful for your word and for your spirit. We're grateful for one another, and we ask that your spirit would be in our midst, giving us wisdom, giving us love for each other, and helping us to apply the lessons that Paul taught the Roman church to our own lives and our own church. We thank you for what you've done for us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, gang. So, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. As always, we will review uh, last week's uh, stuff first. So this will be your chance if you've been sitting on anything for the last week that you wanted to talk about, issues of clarification. We're going to continue to work through the theme of Christoformity. So we'll review that and then we'll continue to apply it. This week, I was supposed to do two chapters of Christoformity. That was my plan. But as I started working on the lesson, we're only going to get through one of those. So uh, we'll, we'll finish off Christoformity next week before moving on to section two of the book um, and also moving deeper into Romans. Um, so the way this is structured is we're going to spend most of our time, just as a, as a preview, we're going to spend most of our time in the back half of Romans. That's where McKnight does most of his work. So by the time we get to the first half, which is actually more famous, like you'll know more stuff from the first half of Romans, um, he, he doesn't spend as much time on that. Uh, so anyway, I don't know that there's any value to be placed there, but it is simply uh, a reality um, that we'll have. So anyway, let's go ahead and I'll open up our PowerPoint for this week. There it is. Should be pretty, this screen should be pretty familiar to you at this point. Slideshow. There we go. Okay. So we're going to stay in chapters 12 through 15 of Romans. Um, you know, depending on how much you want to do with this class, uh, I would really encourage you to read these sections after we talk. Um, you know, especially if you're taking notes or whatever, if you want a copy of my PowerPoint, I'll be happy to send it along because it'll have the verses and citations with it. But it, again, it just depends on what you want. Um, but if you really are seeking to kind of get a handle on Romans, then I would, I would recommend um, reading through this stuff multiple times. As you've noticed, Romans is, is very wordy, and the word I use is, is thick. So um, anyway, so it, it's, it's, it's a challenging book, as you have perceived so far. So it just, it just depends on what you want to get out of it. Obviously, I'm not testing you on this stuff. So anyway, although I may be testing some of you, I'm just not going to tell you about it. All right, so let's go ahead and, and move along here. Uh, let me move that. There we go. That's not where I want to be. There we go. That's where I want to be. So Christoformity defined. Lived theology is Christoformity. It is the process of being conformed to Christ. So when we think about this, think about lived theology. That's just, just keep those two words. If you find yourself getting lost in this talk of Christoformity, just substitute in your head lived theology. 
and lived theology is something I think all of you can understand. And, and all of us who follow Jesus do this. We live our theology in certain ways. What Paul was trying to do was to get the Romans to live their theology in a very specific way and specifically his theology. So lived theology, just keep those words kind of running on background in your head. It may be one of the questions that you may have as we work through this is, is you may understand how Paul was asking the strong and the weak to live their theology in that context. But a question you might have is, so what about today? Uh, those are interesting questions, and we can certainly pause to talk about them. So if you get into a place where you're having a difficult time trying to figure out how to make Romans alive in your life today, we should definitely pause and talk about that. So just keep that stuff running on in your background, lived theology. Christ is the paradigm, the fundamental revelation of who God is. And the God in Christ revelation is one who, because he was God, chose not to stay put, but entered missionally into being a human, even to the degrading status of one crucified. That missional incarnation created redemption. Missional incarnation is a really uh, nifty theological phrase, and it's loaded. Like, um, if you sit there and, and think about what those two words mean, uh, then it gets to a pretty interesting idea of who Jesus was and is and what God was trying to accomplish through the incarnation. A lot of times in our church, uh, we use the word mission to focus specifically on kind of good works for the poor. The word mission in this context means the mission of God. It doesn't, it's not narrowly focused on good works or helping the poor. That's a part of God's mission. But overall, what McKnight is pointing us to is that God's missional incarnation was about redemption. It was about the redemption of humanity through Jesus Christ. So all the ways in which Jesus's life did that is missional. That was God's mission. Okay, so that's Christoformity. So this is Christoformity affirmed. Lived theology, aka Christoformity, is grounded in the pattern of Christ. Um, this is what we've talked about. Romans 14, 7 to 9 teaches that Christ's death led to his resurrection, which led to his ascension and rule. So those who live or die, quote, live to the Lord and die to the Lord. In such a manner, Christ is Lord of both the living and the dead. So again, this is affirming that missional incarnation. Think about those words, that missional incarnation. Christ's death led to his resurrection. Christ's resurrection was part, a huge part of his mission, his purpose. And then the last review, Christoformity explored. The strong are not to please themselves, but to use their power and privilege for others. Why? because Christ did not please himself. Remember the strong, who are the strong? Are they Gentile or Jew? They are Gentile, making me question myself by your silence. Uh, they are Gentile. Uh, so the strong are Gentile Christians and they have the power in Rome. The stronger to have a life shaped by pleasing others. We're gonna hit on this again this week. So this is a preview of coming attractions. If they do, they will find harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ. Welcome one another. Why or how? Just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, here we see lived theology as Christoformity. So welcome, 
McKnight is arguing is core to the Christoformity that Paul is trying to teach to the Romans. We're going to talk again today about welcome because uh, it's certainly a theme that as I studied Romans in the past, I had not noticed or paid attention to. And it's probably because I haven't spent as much time in the second half of Romans as I have in the first half of Romans. So this is something that I've been thinking a lot about as I've been doing these lessons um, and preparing them and reading the book and then rereading Romans. So anyway, okay, any questions? This was all last week's stuff. So uh, any questions or comments about that before we move along to this week's stuff? Phil? Yes, Lucy Edson. Did I hear you say last week or did I mishear what you said that Paul would not be a fan of self-help? Of self-help. Yeah, probably that would not be what Paul's, Paul. so what Paul's interested in actually is the same thing Jesus was interested in, which is really the, the divestment of self. It's really the idea that we move away from focus on the self and we focus on, uh, the theological term would be, it's, well, we focus on the mission of God. The more you focus, Paul's argument would be this, the more you focus on the mission of God, the less you are focused on the self. That's his, that's his argument. Um, and so I think from a self-help perspective, I don't, I wouldn't interpret this as like Paul would be anti, uh, and Greg, you'll be glad to hear this, uh, psychology or psychiatry or counseling or meditation or reflection. That's not the point. So the point would be, uh, God, Paul would be wanting us though, not to orient our purpose in the world around ourselves. I think that would be, uh, that would be a claim I would be very comfortable making. Does that help Lucy? Mm -hmm. So uh, this kind of pouring out of the self. And again, McKnight's making this, this connection uh, very clearly through crucifixion, right? So you see the way that this manifests itself in the crucifixion of Christ. The fact that an incredibly selfless act is at the core of human redemption, teaches us something that's instructive as well as redemptive is, is Paul's argument and, and McKnight's argument as well. So this idea, um, again, you know, this harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, this idea of, of harmony, of, of hospitality even, you can, you can trace a line from that back to the crucifixion because that is the ultimate act of selflessness. And what does, you know, you can then manifest that in all sorts of ways. So the crucifixion is really, really important for our understanding of Jesus. This is why your pastors always get wound up when people show up for Easter Sunday, but not Good Friday. <laughs> Every year. Tosh and I say on Palm Sunday, come to Maundy Thursday or Good Friday. Easter won't be the same without them. Anyway, and many of you do. Kudos to you, by the way. So anyway, you can't have Easter Sunday without Good Friday. You can't ha have resurrection without crucifixion. Crucifixion is fundamental to interpreting for us who God is. God is sacrificial. There you go. Uh, we should really just stop there probably, but we're going to keep going because you're paying me by the hour. All right. Romans 12, three through eight. We are on to this week now. 
So I'm going to read this very slowly. Bible. You good? Okay. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry in ministering. The teacher in teaching. The exhorter in exhortation. The giver in generosity. The leader in diligence. The compassionate in cheerfulness. Boy, that's something, right? Nobody thinks about the word cheerfulness showing up in scripture, but doggone it, there it is. I mean, we, we tend to think sobriety is something we tend to focus on in our faith, I think, much more than cheerfulness. That's, a, that's an aside. Anyway, uh, so that's Romans 12, 3 through 8, and we're hitting on those themes, the familiar themes of Paul of one body with many members. Here, when he's talking about members, he's not talking about members in the sense we do today is like, I'm, member, I'm a member of the gym, I'm a member of Sam's Club, I'm a member of First Presbyterian Church, although I'm not. Uh, he's talking about body parts. So we have many members, we have hands, we have fingers, we have feet, we have legs, we have shoulders, we have thighs, we have heads, we have noses, many members, but one body. Okay, so Christoformity is embodied body of Christ orientation. Don't say that fast. Uh, it is embodied body of Christ orientation. So we, as you know, the church is the body of Christ, and our lived theology orients us towards that truth and then to embodying it, like living it out. Okay, to live an embodied life for God is to live with other bodies, people, in the body of Christ. The danger in that body then is a danger in that body today, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. So, you know, again, this idea here is we hold ourselves within the church as being secondary to the church body itself. That's what Paul's trying to drive people to. You are not as important as us. So uh, this, is, this is the old uh, no I in team uh, halftime talk that Paul's giving here. There's no I in team, guys. We play as one unit. Uh, this, is, this is what Paul's saying here, uh, is that you can't, it's very difficult to have a proper body of Christ uh, theology, and it's certainly difficult to live it if your orientation towards your faith is primarily coming from your own self and your own self's desires, needs, and wants, right? So we see this all the time in the church, and it's particularly challenging in our own culture today. Um, and I want to read now the second part, because I think I'll, I'll be able to show you what I mean. So this is a quote from McKnight. Why call the church a body? Romans and Greeks used body for the body politic, and the term church for church was used for the gathered citizens in a political assembly. It was impossible for those terms 
not to have political overtones. Combine church with body, and we are confronted with a Pauline claim. The local house churches, this is important, were an alternative to the body politic of Rome. They were an alternative to the body politic of Rome. Now, I know this is going to be difficult for us to apply because our bodied politic here in America is so high functioning and so life giving. But that was irony, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this is so important. I think this is an absolutely, as I read this this week, I think this is an absolutely vital idea for the church. You should walk into the church and it should feel the exact opposite of the body politic in culture. That's what Paul's saying. The Roman body politic was marked. Remember our conversations about this way back at the beginning? It was marked by social status. It was marked by, uh, the word has just totally escaped me, trying to climb the ladder, ambition. It was marked by ambition. It was marked by social status. It was marked by the desire to accumulate power and wealth. I kid you not, these are the exact things that they were going for. They sound remarkably familiar to me as I consider our current context. He wanted those house churches to be the exact opposite of that type of cultural experience. So whereas you go out into society and it is marked by how high you are on the social ladder, <coughs> It is marked by who your patrons are. It is marked by the role you play and the power you have in deciding the rules for everybody else. When you come into the church, it is marked by a radical deference to the other around you. In the church, what you're seeking to do is divest yourself of power, right? You're trying to push it away from you. You're trying to think of yourself not as highly as you ought to think. You're trying to think about the body, not any individual member. It's the exact opposite. There are many, many lessons here for us in modern America as our approach to church. But the one that I think we should take away is that any experience with the church should feel the exact opposite of a political encounter in our secular world around us. You should feel no similarity. That's very difficult to do, but that's the claim Paul's making. And he thinks there's a lot at stake there as well. So uh, let's see here before, do I wanna, yeah, there's a little more here on this and then we'll have a conversation. So what are these diverse gifts of the spirit? In different contexts, Paul lists different gifts. But here to the Romans, he mentions prophesying, ministering, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, and being compassionate. Each, it needs to be noted, is a function, which is to say that each gift is something practiced or done, not owned or possessed. The gifts are what happens when the Spirit of God takes the sacrifice of an embodied Christian and uses it for the good of the body of Christ. That last bit is vital you will see that those gifts all serve the upbuilding of the community. None of those gifts should orient the community back to focus on the individual who wields them. Rather, they should come together 
to build up the community. I'm going to read that last sentence again that I bolded. The gifts are what happens when the Spirit of God takes the sacrifice of an embodied Christian and uses it for the good of the body of Christ. The gifts are assigned not to the strong or the weak, but to both the weak and the strong. Okay, so uh, peace and unity is our next, next little bit. So we'll pause here for a second. I'm gonna stop the share, bring us all back together. Greetings to all of you. Uh, questions, comments on that section right there about the body of Christ and embodied uh, discipleship together. Was this different than the gifts of the Spirit? Uh, okay, so um, Greg asked if this was different than the gifts of the Spirit. No, no, these are all Spirit-oriented gifts. These are similar to the gifts that we will see um, outlined, for example, in 1 Corinthians. So these are, but they are, they are spiritual gifts. So remember, these are the type of gifts that are going to have tremendous value within the church, but have almost no value in the culture around you, right? So, um, so these gifts are, are spiritual functions. Are they choices or are they inherited? So Paul would say they're inherited. Paul would say they're bestowed by the spirit. Absolutely. They are given to the believer by the spirit for the purpose of building up the community. So this is why it's important to think about what spiritual gifts we might have, because all of us have different ones and they all uh, make the community better theoretically. Um, and so it's important. Uh, Ram, then Shirley. Ram, go ahead, and then Shirley. Uh, yeah, so if you have a uh, particular strength or a gift, and you feel like that that may be yours, uh, is it important to uh, stick with what you know, or should you try to be bigger and better and know all? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a great question. So should you, should you, if you have one of these gifts, or you've identified your gifts, should you just be focusing on that, or should you be building others as well? I think what you should recognize there is the role that that gift plays within your church, within the body of Christ, and then constantly asking yourself, am I using this role to benefit the people around me or am I not? And how can I do that better? But then in your personal spiritual faith, because it's a both and, right? Like even though we talk about selflessness, uh, there, is a, there, is a, there is an introspective aspect always to our faith. That's going to make us a better member of the body. And it's also going to help us be closer to God. So in that introspective way, I think always we have a path to walk in our faith and we should never neglect our gifts. We should hone them, sharpen the saw, as they say. Uh, but, um, but I don't think we should confuse uh, our gift, or our spiritual gifts with our overall uh, faith life. Our spiritual gift is a tool for the community. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Shirley. Yes. Would you uh, relate compassion to cheerfulness? <laughs> That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Well, first, do you have a relationship for it? Or did, did you have a thought? You've muted yourself. Did you have a thought? Um, well, the one thing I thought about is... Um, in cheerfulness, I can see how that, because if we believe God is in control, then we believe that um, I've got, where's my picture? Okay. If we believe God is in control, then that 
should give us a sense of joy, happiness, cheerfulness, and a sense. But I couldn't quite really see the connection between compassion and cheerfulness. Well, as as I'm thinking about it, um, this is this is a rough analogy, surely, because I'm just not thinking about it. But think about yourself um, going into a shop. It's a shop where you're looking for a particular good, and it's not something that you know a lot about. I experience this every time I have a home improvement project. I know nothing, and I go into the store, and I, I, I'm an idiot in that sense, and so I need help, right? I need help at the store. So sometimes when I go into the store, I find somebody who's infinitely more knowledgeable than me, and what they love to do is to make sure that I understand that they are infinitely more knowledgeable than me on this particular subject. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that before, but it is one that I have experienced. On the other hand, I've gone into a store and that's where the cheerfulness thing surely makes me think of the relationship because have you ever gone in and done, done that sort of thing and had somebody say, well, tell me about your project. Let's see what we can do. I bet I, I have some ideas. I know some things that might work for you. Come on, let me show you. Like there's a certain cheerfulness to that type of desire to help. And if you lay that, if you take away the economic portion of that, so you just lay it on the church, right? So compassion is a recognition of needs in the life of the other. That's what compassion I think generally is, is you are recognizing that this other person has needs and challenges in their life. Then when you greet that with cheerfulness, it, it opens a door for you to, I think, help that person and be with that person, even if you can't do anything. Just the simple idea of that, like even that language, because I've had that before where people have said to me, well, let's see what we can do. Just using that word we and making me feel like that person is helping me and, and, and cares about my project, uh, it makes me feel better. Um, I don't feel as self-conscious. I don't feel as foolish. Uh, so there may be some relationship there. I mean, again, this is where I hate to say this sort of stuff, but I really would be, I would have to look at the Greek uh, to see exactly the roots of those words versus how they've been translated. Um, I suspect McKnight didn't bring up any issues with translation, so I suspect they're pretty close, but, um, but that would be a kind of more technical side of it, but I can see a relationship as I think about it between compassion and cheerfulness. I don't know if the rest of you, uh, if, if you've experienced those sorts of things or not, but that made me think of that. Okay, Randy and Janet, you have a question. I see a little hand on your screen. Yep, you do. Um, so I'm a, I'm a little conflicted with this uh, <clears throat> gift thing. Yeah. Uh, because you know, when you tour down the list, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people will say, well, I had that, I had that, I had that, I had that. Um, I, I guess my problem is when it, the very concept of a gift and mm -hmm. then the, the thing that we just read on your screen, that these are selected, that I can't remember if it said assigned. Anyway, that these were selected by Christ. The fact that we choose the gift we decide to be participating in, mm -hmm. doesn't that kind of preempt that whole Christ thing. I mean, I, I, I get concerned is like, oh, I, I'm cheerful. I'm gonna be cheerful. It's a lot less expensive, you know, I, whatever. I, I, my thing is that I don't, hmm, 
I'm not positive that I feel like uh, my gift is always the same gift. Mm -hmm. Okay, that I guess what I'm trying to say is that on this particular Tuesday, um, something in my character can do this this function for the body of Christ, and therefore he says, "Bing, today, Janet, you're going to be this." Mm -hmm. And then next Wednesday, not so not so well, um, you know, employed to be compassionate. Maybe you know, headache, whatever. But I have other things, and that on this Wednesday, bing you have you are functioning as this mm -hmm. so i i want i could you give me some clarification on those i've always been mystified by the gifts of the spirit yeah so that's a great question and using the word mystified is appropriate because when you're talking about the holy spirit you are talking about a mysterious element of our faith um the holy spirit's very difficult to pin down when you think about what paul's arguing here so let me start from there. What Paul's saying here is that within a church, within these churches, everybody has specific gifts that they bring to the body. He's telling them this for two reasons. One, he's telling them this because it's important that they examine what those gifts might be. But two, he's telling them this, and this is what's really important, and this is where you might want to think about your orientation, He's telling them this so that they recognize that they need one another. That's more of the purpose of what he's doing. You shouldn't read the list in Romans or the one which is longer in 1 Corinthians. You shouldn't read either of those as exhaustive. Um, right. What you should do is see them as, uh, as significant and diverse so that uh, you see the need for the full body right? He's trying to drive us away from orienting our faith around only ourselves. He's trying to drive us towards orienting our faith around our relationship to the body of Christ around us. So in terms of your gift, your personal gift, Janet, this is something that you kind of explore and then you bring to the church, but on the same token, it's a mindset that you have as you look around you at the people that are part of your church as your brothers and sisters in Christ and recognize I am just a piece of this. That's as, as important as thinking through the particularities of the gift itself. So, um, so I think getting a, a kind of zooming out and seeing the breadth of what Paul's describing here is helpful to us. As you zoom in on your own life, I suspect that if you thought about your life in church uh, and you thought about what you bring to the church, um, that there would be a thing or things that would maybe bubble up over the course of your life that you see those kind of surfacing again and again during your church life. And then that's something to live into and to recognize, hey, I bring this. This is something I do. I bring this. Uh, you know, the church doesn't do a good job, I don't think, of helping people identify those gifts and live into them. Uh, typically, what the church counts is your physical body in worship and then the, the fact that you give or don't give. Those, those are the two primary things that the church in America, capital C Church in America, measures. So we don't do a great job of saying, hey, let's make sure we identify and then use everybody's spiritual gifts and, and make sure that we have that mindset. We don't do a good job 
of communicating that mindset. Does that help? Yes, thank you very much. Okay, Connie, you got a question or you take it back? No, I was just gonna add to that, but yep. you, you did a fine job. <laughs> Do you wanna add it anyway? No, I was just gonna say that with the spiritual gifts, my, I mean, the way I kind of look at it is more on, I mean, I look at it on an elementary level because that's what I'm used to teaching mm -hmm. is, you know, little kids, but you know, you may love kids, really love kids and want to volunteer with the kids, but you may not be a good teacher, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't like volunteer with the kids anyway. That may not be your spiritual gift teaching, but that doesn't mean that your spiritual gift isn't loving on those children. You can go and be the helper. You yep. just because you're not the leader of children's church doesn't mean you're not equally important to be in there and sit with them and hold them and love them because they need that too. But they also need a teacher. So there's all those, you know, our gifts may all be different. And you may need to one day step up because the teacher can't be there. And because she was saying, one day she may feel like serving is what she's supposed to do. But then the next day she may feel like, you know, another gift is hers just because God gifts us with one gift strongly doesn't mean that we're supposed to put all the others aside and never do them. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we can experience and serve in every area. We don't have to just stick with the one that we're good at but we don't just necessarily take a leadership role in the other areas. We have to look at what we know our strong points are, but it doesn't make us any less important if we're changing diapers or actually heading up the entire nursery department. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And I think kind of distilling it down to like, you know, something simple, like not simple, but something easier to get our minds around, like just the working with children aspect of the church is a great way to think about it. Cause I, I you know, you're right. The person that makes the tang and the nilla wafers uh, is, is as important to the kid as the teacher, maybe more important, maybe more important maybe to more the children. Right. So no, that's great. Uh, thanks for sharing that Connie. And thanks for framing it in that way. That is, that is helpful to us. Okay. So let's go ahead and move on to our peace and unity, uh, conversation now. Peace and unity. This is focusing on Romans 12 and 13. So that's where the focus is going to be. We're going to get back to the idea of welcome here. So this is Romans 12, 9 through 12, and I have underlined some things uh, for you. So this is, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord. Excuse me. Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not, be, do not claim to be wiser than you are. So you can kind of get an idea by what Paul's saying here of what the problems were in the Roman church. Like if you're having to say, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty. Typically, you don't say live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, if everybody's living in harmony with one another and not being haughty. So, uh, you know, it's a good indication that there was some pretty strong interpersonal conflict there. 
And again, too, here in Romans, you see that mark of, of Christianity, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, but also bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor. These, these are all strong statements of selflessness, setting the self aside. Uh, there's just no way to escape that idea uh, in Romans or indeed in the New Testament. So let's talk about this a little bit. I'll go to the next slide. Uh, we're going to continue the passage. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So again, this is the hard stuff, hard work of, of selflessness, of loving others, of working through those things that hold us back um, and challenge us. So here's a, a quote from McKnight. The condescending judgments of the strong and the reactive judgments of the weak in the Roman churches are divisive. And the terms Paul uses are strong, dissensions and offenses. One must think of house church fractures and factions and fissures cracking up the fellowship. One must also think of the genius of the Pauline mission to knock down dividing lines and the message of the gift of redemption available to Jewish and Gentile believers, the weak and the strong. So you have a theologically unifying message of redemption. And then underneath that, you have this lived selflessness. We tend to think of things in terms of, um, uh, in terms of how much of it there is scarcity, right? Like we tend to think of things like they may run out. For example, in the last few months, toilet paper. Everyone has overbought toilet paper. Redemption is not in short supply. Redemption is not something that we need to hoard for ourselves. Redemption is not something that uh, we get um, first for ourselves because there may not be enough so we've got to keep it away from the other guy. It is not, in this sense, toilet paper. Uh, redemption is abundant. God's grace is abundant. So when Paul starts with that unifying message of redemption, he takes away the scarcity. You don't have to worry about it. Don't worry about it. Why are you so worried about the law? Why are you so worried about what you're eating? And why are you so worried about having power and privilege in the church? Is not Christ's grace and redemption enough for all? Are not all of you in need of one another? Is not the body more important than any individual member? Why are you being so divisive when in fact, you don't have anything to compete over? You have redemption through God, for, through Christ Jesus from God. So stop worrying so much about it. The theological concept of redemption and the abundance of God's grace should theoretically, set us free in the church to be more selfless because there is nothing we need to protect or hoard or keep from the other. There's enough for all of us. This runs contrary to the ways in which we think, and it runs contrary, again, to the values in society. Society is dictated by scarcity. Jesus is uh, rooted in abundance. 
So uh, that's why I highlighted this, the genius of the Pauline mission to knock down dividing lines uh, and the message of the gift of redemption being available to Jewish and Gentile believers, the weak and the strong. It's not either or, it's both and. So let's go ahead and see what's on the next slide. Okay, so that's welcoming. Anybody have a question about the, the previous bit there? Um, that, that passage of uh, Romans 12, 9 to 12. Um, anybody have questions or comments about that? Okay, I'm going to keep going. Welcome as active discipleship. So this is really an interesting paragraph that I pulled out uh, for you. I find it interesting. We don't talk about Satan very much in First Presbyterian church world, uh, but certainly scripture does. And this, this pa these passages that McKnight cites here do. Um, so anyway, welcome as an act of discipleship. Those, this is McKnight writing. Those fracturing the fellowship do not serve our Lord Christ. And in parentheses there, I have your, your citation. So that's Romans 16, 18. So they are to know this, quote, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. That's 1620, which is to say the dissensions and offenses created by the judges in the midst of the Roman church are diabolical. God wants the strong and the weak to crush that diabolical work. How will they crush Satan? The answer is the first word in English in chapter 14. That word is welcome. Three times in our passage, 14.1, 14.3, 15.7, Paul urges them to welcome one another. To welcome is to cease being the judges and to become a sibling. To welcome is to create a space for peace and unity. So Paul, McKnight is arguing here, and this is something to think about, is hanging a lot of weight on the idea of welcome as being the first fundamental act of undoing divisiveness. Welcome and hospitality are essential to the unifying work of the church and to the embodied belief of the abundance of God's grace and redemption through Jesus Christ. We welcome, we do not divide. Um, so let's take a look uh, here. So. Um, this is a little thing on tolerance here. Uh, so McKnight argues the tolerance of dietary habit is key to harmony in the Roman church between the strong and the weak. Uh, his section on tolerance uh, largely focuses on issues of dietary minutia. Uh, I'm going to fast forward through that uh, to the final sentence of that section. And here it is. Are you the strong dining with the weak or not? Yes or no? That's the question. And the whole book rides on that question as the heart of lived theology. Paul's sixth point here is welcome. Now remember, what was ancient Roman worship built around? It was built around the meal, and McKnight is making a strong claim here. Most commentators don't make this claim, so it's interesting, a bit novel, but his claim is this, that really all of Romans is about getting the strong and the weak to sit down stop bickering and arguing and eat their worship meal together. That's the, the whole heart of it. You know, I'm just not going to get into the dietary minutia because even through Zoom, I can see you guys like fading on that stuff because it's pretty boring, to be honest. But it, it was real. We've talked about it. Um, so this idea 
of breaking down the barriers that prevent them from sharing meals because that shared meal for Paul is the same as shared worship for us. Worship as a body. Uh, don't sit around a bunch of different tables. So anyway, it's it's an interesting idea. Let's take a look. And here's the this pass these passages on welcoming to the table. The central these are McKnight's words. The central act of Christian ethics for Paul in Romans is welcome. The foundation is the grace of God in Christ, and the true end of that act of welcoming is the glory of God. The central action of Christian ethics for Paul in Romans is welcome. The foundation is the grace of God in Christ, and the true end of that act of welcoming is the glory of God. So think that through. So he's making the claim that welcome is our central Christiform action because it is the foundation of grace. Welcome is the foundation of grace, and the true end of welcoming is the glory of God. At the end of the day, the abundance of grace is a testimony to the character and nature of God. It points the world back to the God we worship. It doesn't point to ourselves. So reading Romans backwards will get us to the act of welcome, for it shows that Romans 1 to 4 and 5 to 9 offer what amounts to two alternatives, one proposed by the weak and one proposed by Paul, whose proposal stands against both the strong and the weak. And here's a little bit more on welcome. These are the citations from earlier. Oops, where'd it go? Oops, there we go. Sorry about that. Hope nobody got uh, freaked out by the scrolling there. You were lucky to miss it. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. <laughs> go read 14.1 and see if it doesn't make you laugh. Uh, we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's 15.1. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's 15.7. This welcoming is about eating with one another. The strong's primary act of Christoformity will be to welcome the weak to the table without argument and without coercion. But Paul is an equal opportunity critic. For in this passage, the welcome is something for both strong and weak. The theme of God's glory turns on the strong and weak division. Rather than focusing on themselves, Paul wants them to turn their focus to God and God's glory. Welcome embodies Christoformity because the Jewish Messiah both welcomed and became a servant for both Jews and Gentiles. So that was a fairly lengthy conversation about, uh, let me move this. There we go. Stop the share. There you are. So that was a fairly lengthy uh, conversation about welcome. And I kind of rushed through it a little bit because I want to make sure I honor our time. Um, but that passage that I read to you about linking welcome to grace and grace to God's glory uh, is kind of the main takeaway there. So welcome is, is just, it's a fundamental piece of, uh, of, of where we are uh, and where we're called to be. So Questions or comments about that bit? I know Does that it all again? Ann Smith. Yeah. Does it all get down to trying to see others as God sees them? Yeah, I think absolutely, Ann. The this idea of trying to see others as God sees them. So one thing that we tend to forget is that as much as we would like to believe it, uh, we are not God's favorite child. Yes. Uh, yes. God, God actually truly does love all of us equally. And so that should be freeing again for us 
it should remind us that, you know, here in the church, we don't have to worry about our place. We just have to worry about it. Um, God's taking care of that. And so this, it should free us to really live selflessly. It should, uh, but that's really hard to do. And, and it hasn't necessarily been something that the church has taught or communicated very well. I think it, it's probably a bit of a problem in the history of the church that the early, well, not the early, early church, but by the time the church really started to take root. So let's go to the fourth century. Uh, we very quickly established a fairly clear and strong hierarchy within the church. And that did two things. One, it pulled us away um, from the kind of radical egalitarianism that Paul talked about. But then two, it disincentivized talking about that egalitarianism. Because if you stand around and you talk all the time about equality, 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 but then you have a very rigid hierarchy, uh, those two things don't necessarily go together. But yeah, it doesn't. So I think part of the problem that we have here goes back centuries in terms of our failures to embody what Paul's talking about. And it's not like the, the Romans were necessarily great at it either, but, but it certainly is the standard to which we're called. My gosh. So yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right, Ann. Any other questions or comments this morning? <clears throat> Nothing, that's it. Greg Roberts has a comment. Go ahead, Greg. Um, I, I will say this. I want to read this more mm -hmm. before I make assumptions. <laughs> but one of the questions that I, keeps occurring to me, and maybe this is in my own brain, is was Paul capable of really, truly, completely understanding what it's like to be a Jew in this culture? Mm -hmm. So was Paul capable of understanding what it was like to be a Jew yeah, I mean, in this I culture? I don't mean to question the integrity of that. But, yeah. But I mean, I, I find that maybe not he is not even seen in the mm -hmm. of this, but I guess I'm, maybe I'm mm -hmm. really confessing that I sense that maybe he, I haven't been discovered that answer or well, he he did it. I mean, he was Jewish and he was living in a Roman world and he was a Roman citizen. Um, I think for Paul, once he made the change in his life and once he had that change, I don't think he had a tremendous amount of patience for other people's struggles to make that change. Like you might compare it to like, um, you know, if, if you decided if you hadn't been in shape and you decided to get in shape and you really embraced exercise and you really made a big change in your life and all of a sudden you became this big exercise person. It's difficult then to have compassion for people who won't do that. You know what I'm saying? You know, you can pick anything like that, but some area where you've affected change, significant change in your own life, having empathy or compassion for other people's inability to make that change. That's kind of what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think that, I think the empathy and compassion piece would be significant. Now, keep in mind, What's at stake for Paul here is not just being right or wrong. What's at stake for him is the very perpetuation of the gospel. That's what's on the line for Paul. So for Paul to compromise on Jewish adherence to Torah law in the midst of Roman culture, in his mind, would be to compromise on the gospel itself. That's why I say we don't want to like have him over for dinner. Like he wasn't fun. Like you should, that should be obvious. He was not fun. 
um, he was rigid. He was a zealot. I mean, he, but the fruits are there because his ideas won. Um, and so I don't think he was particularly compassionate at this point, nor do I think he was particularly empathetic. Um, and he wasn't cheerful. What he what? What'd you say, Betty? He wasn't cheerful. He was not cheerful. Not really. Not outside of <laughs> Philippians. Um, he was not particularly cheerful. Um, you know, he did use words of affection and whatnot, but he when it, he was uncompromising when it came to his understanding of the gospel. Absolutely. And that was going to make things very difficult for Jewish Christians. So you're right in naming that, Greg. Yeah. Other, Shirley, you have a question? Yeah. Um, my translation says, without passing judgment on disputable matters. Well, I can see right now we've been talking about the difference between being a Jew and a Gentile, eating together and that kind of thing. Well, that's not what disputable matters, I think, would be in our churches today. So how would, what would these, how would that affect the body of Christ? Okay, that's great. So those would not be the disputable matters, right? Like we don't, when we have a church potluck, we don't have to have a kosher section of the potluck. Uh, in fact, I think we've had shellfish numerous times at our church potluck. So uh, obviously we have fully embraced Paul's rejection of dietary restrictions. Um, so these, you're correct in saying these are not the, the issues for us today. To me, uh, the primary issue for us today and the number one area of struggle that we have is simply the fundamental level of individualizing our faith. Uh, we err far too much on the side of me, not we. Um, we, we tend to think and, and mediate. This is my perspective. We tend to mediate our relationship with church in very much the same way we mediate our relationship with a business. So when you go to a business, a restaurant, a shop, you're going there for a purpose. And that restaurant or shop needs to meet that purpose of why you are there. If you're there for a great meal, they need to provide a great meal. If you're there for a certain type of clothes, they need to provide a certain type of clothes. Otherwise, they have failed us, right? They have failed. So we tend to think of the church in the very much the same way. We walk into the church and we think, this is the place that needs to meet my spiritual needs. But that orientation, as you can see, if you've really been paying attention to what Paul has been writing, is, is really the opposite. We should walk into church and we should think, this is my opportunity to meet the spiritual needs of others. Right? Like we're orienting from the us to the me, not the me to the us. And so on that very fundamental level, you can see that way that how that manifests itself in American Christianity today. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote about this almost 40 years ago now of his fear of the church uh, simply becoming a purveyor of religious goods and services. When the church accepts that identity, then it becomes no different from a business. And when it becomes no different from a business, it either meets the needs of the consumers or it goes out of business. So there's a, there's a fundamental breakdown within the church on the level of the individual versus the group. And is, it should be abundantly clear to all of us in church 
it is about the group. It's about the body, period. Um, and the upbuilding of that body. And to me, the, iron the irony of it is if, if the church did this really well, like if we really were great at welcome, at hospitality, at thinking as a community, at thinking as a body, at thinking of, of selflessness, then we wouldn't at all be worried about growth, right? Because that would at this point be so contrary to the world around us that people would be simply blown away to actually experience it. Who raised that question, Gene, who? Uh, that was Shirley. No, I'm talking oh. about you said the good conservative church. Oh, Eugene Peterson. Eugene, Eugene Peterson, yeah. He just died. He's a famous Presbyterian pastor. Mm -hmm. Eugene Peterson said that. The church is purveyor of religious goods and services. A companion quote to that is an indictment of ministers from Will Willimon, which is frequently quoted uh, in my household, where he said, uh, church pastors have become quivering masses of availability. Yep. <laughs> So we think about that one. <laughs> uh, anyway, but it shows too, you guys, the ways in which the church is, is um, invariably shaped by the culture in which it is invested and embedded. Um, I can tell you when, it, you know, Ann Smith, you can think about this and others, uh, when you've walked into church in Haiti, uh, let me tell you that the people who come into church in Haiti are not coming in uh, wondering if their needs will be met that day because they have no expectation of their needs being met anywhere in their society. So the idea that they would walk into church thinking first and foremost about whether or not that particular church will meet their needs uh, is, is not, it's not a category that they would have. So this is, this is an American thing. Like we have to recognize this. I've heard people say that like they left the church because it was not meeting their needs. Absolutely. Of course. Oh, I hear that all the time. Yeah, yeah. Church was not meeting my needs, right? Yeah. And then the invariable question is, well, what, in what ways were you meeting the needs of the other members of the body around you? And the answer is usually not at all, <laughs> right? I mean, so it, it it is just it's just, but you can see, right? Like you can see why people get there. You can see how they get there in their mind, and you can also see if you think back to your history with the church the ways in which the church has actively cultivated that idea. Mm -hmm. um, because either through the, the desire to grow or because it's simply the path of least resistance. Like it's just, you know, you're trying to unspool a thread that has long since run away. So it's, it's very challenging, but that, that's my answer to the question, Shirley. It is simply the idea on that root level. So you can take that idea then and you can lay that over the me, not we, uh, idea you can lay that over almost any conflict in in your congregation this congregation almost any of them are rooted back to the idea of this is what i think church should be therefore we should do x and i don't mean that as a dig on people i mean that's just the way that people have been taught paul would be that's our human character to pick ourselves as it first. Is absolutely, Anne. It is our human character. It's absolutely our human character. I mean, we are inherently selfish. This is why we pray our prayer of confession every Sunday. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yes. That that one should be catching our attention most mm -hmm. weeks. Uh, that idea of coming before God with our sin. 
Uh, so. I, I wonder if we'd look at each person mm-hmm. and know how God, I mean, imagine how God looks at them, but also to see their plus side, to mm-hmm. see, count their, uh, you know, what they can give. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of the word now. But. No, it's great. No, that's a great way to think about it, Ann. I mean, think about, there's a reason. All of you guys, every single one of you, when, when we, pre-pandemic, you were in church almost every Sunday. Right. The simple fact that you showed up there testifies to the ways in which your life has been enriched by the people around you in this building. Right. And now what matters is being able to then name that and exactly. connect that. You aren't just coming here for the organ or for the day one band or because you like the sanctuary or because you care about the mission projects. Those may be how they articulate themselves in your mind, but you, all of us, certainly I have, been enriched by the people here. And exactly. that's, that's what we, we need to do a better job of naming, is, is these human beings have enriched my life and enriched my faith. And I should know that, but then also they should know that. Right. Like right. they should know. And that's what Paul's getting at. Jews, Gentiles, strong, weak, you're not going to be able to do this without each other. So recognize that you need each other. And then the first act of that recognition is hospitality. It's welcome. I welcome you. You welcome me. We're welcoming each other, not just into a building, but into our faith. And we're welcoming each other, not just into our faith, but into Christ's body, into Christ's grace and redemption. So it's a, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big thing, that act of welcome. It's not the same as just welcoming somebody into a house or like when you walk into a business and they say, well, welcome to such and such. No, you're welcoming somebody into a way of life, but also into a theological reality that we need to name. So, and, and again, that idea that there, there's abundance, it's not scarce, it's abundance, it is vital to that, that identity. They're going downtown. So. Huh. <laughs> right? I mean, you think about it, it should be emotional. I mean, it should be like, my gosh. I mean, all of us, I think almost all of us have been in church huge chunks of our lives. So absolutely, we, we should be thinking about those people uh, right now. Yep. Anything else you want to say? Any final thoughts? Okay. I'm going to wrap us up then for today. So let me go back uh, so that you can see what is happening next week so that you don't accuse me of uh, not telling you. So next week, we'll be looking at Romans 12, 14 through 13, 10. Um, Christiformity as public orientation lived theology the believers in Rome practiced in the body of Christ was to filter its way out into their relationships and their orientation towards the Roman Empire. So we've been talking about the ways in which our faith uh, reflects our fellowship here in the church, but next week we'll talk about the ways in which our faith should affect our uh, presence in our community where we live. So it should be a good conversation there. This was great. So thank you everybody.
Thanks for listening to Sunday School Shorthand. Uh, as a reminder, you can watch the video of this class on the church's YouTube channel. You can also join on Sunday mornings via Zoom. Thanks so much for sticking with us, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.